Well, welcome back, guys, to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by my co-host, Tom Firestone. We're going to go rapid fire today because uh, uh, we got stuff going on. But <laughs> um, So Tom's going to kick us off by talking about possible new Russia sanctions relating to um, the Ukraine um, matter, which is, frankly, geopolitically very fascinating to me. But So Tom's going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about a recent uh, denial uh, by a judge of a motion to dismiss in the shadow trading insider trading case, SEC versus Panuat. Tom, you remember we spoke about that a couple months ago. The judge issued a, a motion to dismiss uh, ruling a few days ago, and I want to talk about that. So without further ado, maybe why don't you start and then I can bring us on. Thanks a lot, Jerome. So Ukraine's situation is heating up. As we tape today, Wednesday afternoon, it is not clear where things are going. But yesterday, State Department spokesman Jen Psaki said that, quote, we believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Secretary of State Blinken needed something similar today. Jen Psaki said no option is off the table. So what does this mean in terms of sanctions? We're legal show, we're not a you know, military show, so I'm not going to talk about military options. What are the sanctions options that are on the table when President Biden, when Secretary Blinken talk about these devastating consequences that military action in Ukraine would have for the Russian economy? What exactly can we do? What are we likely to do? So I thought that a lot is discussed in the media. I thought it'd be useful to just go through the different options and try to assess how likely they are and what they would mean. One option, which is discussed frequently, which is referred to as the nuclear option, which is an unfortunate choice of words when you're talking about conflict with Russia, is cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system, the international payment system. This is something that, you know, I think the U.S. government thinks would, some in the U.S. government think would really have devastating consequences for their the Russian um, economy because it'd be impossible for them to use the SWIFT system to make payments or to receive payments. This was something that was originally discussed in 2014 at the time of the Crimea annexation. The US nor the, the EU uh, decided to pursue this. I think the problem with this option is and the reason that we have uh, not gone for it, and there were reports yesterday from a German uh, newspaper that this is now taken off the table um, by agreement of the Western allies, um, a position which Jen Sock, as you just heard, denied, saying that nothing is off the table. I think the problem here is just simply that the EU imports more than 40% of its gas and 25% of its oil from Russia. So if you cut Russia off from the SWIFT system, there is no way for them to pay for that oil and gas, which is so essential to East Europe and to European economies. Similarly, since this option was first bandied about um, in 2014, Russia has developed an alternative payment system that would allow for the making and receipt of payments. So I think that this would really just I think there is a consensus that something like this would just hurt European businesses, wind up forcing everyone to an alternative payment system. So it wouldn't really have that much effect on the Russian economy and create a hassle for European businesses. And I think that's a lot of the reason that it is, um, seems to be falling in priority as an option. Another possibly more likely option would be to um, prohibit trading in Russian sovereign debt on secondary markets. Right now, as a result of sanctions that were put in place previously, there is a prohibition on primary purchases of um, Russian uh, sovereign debt in primary markets. The secondary markets, though, are still available. And there is thinking that if you were to cut off secondary market transactions as well, 
either by um, sanctioning anyone doing business with Russian sovereign debt um, in one way or another, that this would increase the cost of borrowing for the Russian government. According to one study, it would increase the cost of borrowing from 0.5% to 0.8%. I think, though, there is opposition to this as well for similar reasons. One is, um, first of all, what would it do if you prohibited Russian trading in Russian uh, sovereign debt and secondary markets, it would force a sell-off of the uh, bonds which are currently held, which means that the, bond, the current bond holders would be hurt by this because they would have to sell rapidly and the price would plummet, and Russia would be able to repurchase that debt at a lower price than it sold it. So that is one criticism of it. Another point is that since 2014, Russia being aware that something like this may happen has developed significant reserves of its own. Um, So I think that this is something that uh, is also, when it's looked at, is also seen as not the most appealing option. The US Chamber of Commerce, I just say, has uh, also come out publicly against something like this. There's a proposal by a um, congressman in California to do something like this, Congressman Sherman, and I'll just read to you the US Chamber of Commerce's comment on that. It said, the Sherman Amendment would prohibit US banks from purchasing ruble-denominated bonds, which would limit the ability of U.S. banks to serve their U.S. corporate clients operating in Russia. Basic operations relating to payroll and vendor payments would become impossible. While intended to impose constraints on the Russian government, the legislation would have significant effect on its ability to secure funds in global markets, given the Russian government would have insignificant effect on its ability to secure funds in global markets, given the Russian government's strong foreign exchange and gold reserves, while severely harming U.S. companies' operations in Russia and benefiting their competitors elsewhere. So I think that is also not the most attractive option, though it may be where where the Biden administration and our European allies land. A more likely option would be additional sanctions on Russian banks, uh, especially Russian state-owned banks. We have some sense of what this might look like because there are a couple of bills floating around on the Hill right now, one introduced by Senator Cruz, one introduced by Senator Menendez, which would which propose various sanctions on um, Russia in the event of a significant escalation of hostilities in Ukraine. The Menendez bill would require the designation, list 12 Russian banks, 12 large Russian banks, would require the executive branch to designate three of them for sanctions, basically turning them into especially, you know, SDNs, meaning prohibition on all transactions with them. Again, though, I think that this also has some problems. It would still leave the question of how to make payments into Russia for energy from Europe. And probably what it would do, again, the Menendez bill lists 12 banks, three of them would have to be sanctioned. It would probably just drive this business to the other non-sanctioned banks. Query how effective this would be, how much this would actually hurt Russia. It would be disruptive for both them and our businesses, not clear that it would force um, a change in Russian policy. Something that I think is much more likely among the options is sanctions on Nord Stream 2. We've talked about this before. This is the pipeline from Russia um, into Germany. The Trump administration had sanctioned the operators of that. The Biden administration lifted those sanctions um, under pressure from Germany. As I say, there are a couple uh, bills pending on the Hill right now which proposed different kinds of sanctions. Senator Cruz's bill would require the placement of sanctions on, quote, 
entities responsible for the planning, construction, or operation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline within 15 days, no matter what. So that would not even be triggered by an escalation of hostilities in Ukraine. It would just require the placement of sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline immediately right, within 15 days. Senator Menendez's bill um, would give the, the Biden administration more of an off-ramp here and basically say, if there is a triggering event, i.e. a significant escalation of hostilities in Ukraine, then the um, executive would be required to look at all, consider all available and appropriate measures to prevent Nord Stream 2 from becoming operational, including through sanctions with respect to those responsible for planning, constructing, operating the pipeline. And upon a determination that Ukraine, that Russia has escalated, significantly escalated the uh, hostilities in Ukraine, it would require the government to uh, the administration to put sanctions on those responsible for operating Nord Stream 2. I think this is probably the most likely outcome because as you can see, it's got bipartisan support. Senator Cruz, Senator Mendez have both proposed this, though in different forms with different timing and different kinds of triggering events, no triggering event in the case of the Cruz amendment, but there's broad consensus that this should be a focus of US sanctions. The other thing that I think we're likely to see is individual sanctions. These are, you know, have become a favorite tool for the uh, various administrations on Russia. And I think that's because hitting individuals, you're not doing the same, you're not hurting US businesses in the same way. You're holding these, you know, you're sort of naming and shaming individual Russian government, sometimes non-government actors in a way that doesn't hurt US business. It also is more effective from a um, uh, PR perspective, I think, because it doesn't allow the Russian government to say, oh, we're suffering economic consequence. The economy is bad because of what the US has done to us and allows the US government to present these not as anti-Russia sanctions, but as pro-Russia sanctions, saying these are the people, the you know kleptocrats, whatever, who are stealing from the Russian economy. So we're actually on the same page with the Russian people in this. So that's, I think, one of the reasons we keep gravitating towards individual sanctions. I think we are likely to see something like that. The Menendez bill that I mentioned would require the designation as SDNs of President Putin, the prime minister, the foreign minister, the minister of defense, and eight other government officials. I don't think we're going to see that, but I do think we are going to see some uh, more individual sanctions. The bottom line of all of this is that we're in a very difficult position. We don't have a lot of leverage um, through sanctions over Russia in this situation, largely because of the economic interdependence with Europe. That's why I think that the sanctions that have been in place since 2014, while they may have deterred um, further Russian moves in Ukraine, have not produced um, a withdrawal as they were intended to do. So at any rate, we'll see what actually does come of all of this and then report on what it means for companies as we go forward. With that, Jerome, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Tom. Fascinating stuff. So I want to turn to the SEC versus Panuat case, uh, better known as the shadow trading case. Uh, uh, late last week, the judge in the uh, Northern District of California issued a ruling uh, denying uh, the defendant, Mr. Panuat's motion to dismiss. We want to talk about some of the rationale behind that ruling, but real quick for those of you who need a refresher on the case, we'll just give it real quick. So between 2014 and 2017, the SEC alleged that Mr. Panuat worked at a company called Medivation, which is a mid-cap oncology a pharmaceutical company. Um, uh, in 2016, he was director of business development and that role included finding, evaluating, pursuing strategic options to expand um, the company's drug profits, uh, as well as uh, the development of, of the pipeline primary through acquisitions and licensing. He would also receive uh, as a part of his job, confidential information 
uh, about the company, including potential acquisitions of or by the company. Of course, this is all from the uh, the judge's order here. And then in 2016, you know, the, the um, it was also alleged that the company brought in investment banks to explore possibly merging with another company, and that uh, uh, Mr. Pena worked closely with the bankers and motivation executives in assessing the company's options. Um, and so here we go, cutting to the chase. On August 18, 2016, um, Medivation CEO uh, sent an email or, or sent information um, to a bunch of company executives, including Mr. Panyawat, indicating that Pfizer had expressed overwhelming, quote, overwhelming interest, close quote, in acquiring Medivation, and that the, the Pfizer CEO is going to call Medivation CEO later that day to resolve final details with respect to an impending acquisition. And that's all quote from an email. Within minutes of receiving this email, Mr. Panyawat, who again was um, alleged to have been involved in the overall uh, discussions around the transaction, purchased 578 call options in a company called Insight, which was another company parallel or sort of in the same market space as um, as Medivation. Uh, the you know Mr. Panyawat had never traded Insight stock before and didn't tell anybody at Medivation of his trades. On August 20th, Medivation signed the merger agreement with Pfizer, and it was announced two days later. Um, and that as a result of the this announcement, the stock price not only of Medivation but also of other. Uh, pharmaceutical companies in the industry, including Insight, also went up. And so the SEC alleged that as a result of this trade, Mr. Panuat made just a nudge over $100,000, $107,066. And so we talked about this, Tom. And I, I remember us having a discussion about, well, is this even actionable information, right? Or is this information that can be actioned from an insider uh, trading standpoint? And if you recall, we talked that Mr. Panuat was sued by the SEC under the misappropriation theory. And the court in this case started its ruling by saying the SEC has to prove that Mr. Panuat, quote, knowingly misappropriated confidential material and non-public information for securities trading purposes in breach of a duty arising from a relationship of trust and confidence owed to the source of the information. There's a lot in there and we'll talk about that. But in his motion to dismiss, Mr. Panua made a couple points. Um, he said first that the information at issue um, uh, wasn't material and wasn't non-public. Also um, claimed that the SEC did not adequately plead that he breached a duty to motivation, the source of the information. And also that the SEC failed to uh, adequately plead that he acted with the requisite intent um, to defraud known as scienter and securities laws purposes. And so getting to these, the judge, and, and I think probably the, the most fascinating aspect of this case, Tom, is the materiality point, right? Like, you know, this is information. Mr. Panuat traded not in Pfizer stock, not in Medivation stock, but in the stock of a third party. Um, and, and how could this be actionable insider trading? Um, and the court looked at this first through the lens of materiality and addressing Mr. Panuat's materiality claim. And the judge said, look, the bulk of the arguments of the parties here is whether information on the impending Pfizer Medivation acquisition is material to insight. Just what you and I were arguing about months ago, right? I remember that time. Um, and, you know, obviously Mr. Panuat said it wasn't 
or it isn't. Um, and that 10B5 requires that the SEC prove that he traded in insights um, securities on the basis of material non-public information relating to that company, to, to Insight. Uh, he said that the information about the Pfizer motivation acquisition was immaterial to Insight's securities. The SEC obviously opposed that and said, look, information can be material to more than one company. And there appears to have been a lot of discussion in the briefing, Tom, about, well, certainly it can be material to more than one company, because, for example, if company one is buying and company two is selling a company in a merger, it's going to be material to both of those parties, arguably, right? You might be able to short the, comp the, the stock of the acquiring company, as oftentimes that company's stock will go down. Um, and uh, what the court ruled is 10b-5 and Rule 10b-5-1a does not state that the information about the security or issuer must come from the security or issuer itself in order to be material. It only requires that the information be material and non-public. And you know, Mr. Panyawa said, well, hold on, stop. Look, uh, you know, the, the, the standard for materiality, the basic versus Levinson test, as reinforced by the Talbot case, uh, his view was that for the information to be material in the merger context, it can be material to the two corporate entities negotiating the transaction, but it can't be material as a matter of law to all companies in the field, right? And um, that's, again, something that we, we went back and forth on. And the, the court said, look, just bluntly speaking, neither Talbot nor Basic foreclosed the possibility that information may be significant to an issuer, even if it comes from outside the company. Quote, if information may be material to more than one company, as the parties agree, it follows that it may be material to more than the two companies specifically engaged in the transaction, essentially holding that it can be material to the buyer and seller, but if it's material to the buyer and seller, that doesn't mean that it can't be material non-public information related to other companies that that information may impact. And then the judge went on to explain, well, how can this be material? Well, uh, the, the judge said there's adequate detail alleged in the complaint that the, there are a limited number of mid-cap oncology-focused biopharmaceutical companies with commercial stage drugs in 2016. And the acquisition of one such company, Medivation, would have created a domino effect where others could have potentially all of a sudden become more valuable because one just went off the block. And so others looking in the market to buy would have had one less opportunity. So they had to then focus their attention on other companies in the market. Sort of this economic analysis, well, once one player has been purchased, that's, a, that's an indication to the market that the others might be valuable and on the market as well. Look, we can argue all day about whether that is in fact what happened here, um, but at the pleading stage, which is importantly where we're at here, the judge said, look, as a matter of law, information about material information doesn't have to come from you can engage in insider trading in a company where you're not employed by that company and you don't get information from that company. The, the, the source of the information, if you breach a duty to the source of the information, and what they're saying here is you breached it, he breached a duty to his employer, Medivation, 
by using the information about Medivation and Pfizer acquisition, the, that information that there was an impending acquisition and the belief or the assumption that there would be a price impact in other companies in the marketplace. That material non-public information is held by a very few number of people. And Mr. Panuwat, as a member of that privileged circle, the SEC would say, was foreclosed from using that information about the Medivation Pfizer transaction to pursue other investment theories and other uh, companies in the industry under the theory that he could assume that the price would go up of those securities once the information was made public. Again, there's a daisy chain here and there's a dangerous, I think, slope as to, well, where does this argument end, right? What if you get information about the broader economy? You, you, get, you get information about supply chain disruptions. Are you then foreclosed from trading in all companies that can somehow be impacted by supply chain disruptions? Right, look, I, I, I think there are, it's fair to question whether this is the right case to bring and whether this is the right resolution. But at the end of the day, the court said, look, you signed an insider trading policy, Mr. Panuat. It said that you cannot use information you get in your employment to trade in any other securities, including securities of competitors and other public companies. And so what, what the court is saying is, Mr. Panuat, you knew the rules under the policy and you still got this information. And within minutes, of learning that the deal between Medivation and Pfizer was likely to be consummated, you went out and bought call options in a company you'd never even bought stock in in your life. That shows, again, going to the Scienter standpoint, that shows that this wasn't just a lucky guess was what the court is saying. That shows that you had a level of intent to use the information that you got in confidence from your employer to engage in material or, or, or in security trades using that information. And you have no obligation. You're not in any kind of fiduciary relationship with the shareholders of the third company that you. Well, but, but remember, Tom, the court, the court would say this is under this is brought under the misappropriation theory. And under the misappropriation theory, you, an employer or an employee, cannot use information that you get from your employer here, Medivation. For anything. For anything. <laughs> that's what they're saying. That can't be. Yeah. I mean, if you and I understand market trends better because of the matters we're working on at Baker and then we buy stock in a non-Baker client has no relationship to any matter we're working on, that's theoretically falls within the ambit of this ruling. Yes. Well, yeah, I want to be careful there. I, I, I think it opens up a, a lot of questions about where this ruling ends. That um, <laughs> yeah, theoretically, yeah, yeah. though, but under taken to its extreme, that's taken the, to its extreme, absurd, and absolutely, Tom. I think here that the timing and the circumstances of this trade are one where bad fa facts could make bad law. Because what you have is a literally a guy who gets an email about how an acquisition is about ready to be done that 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 he believes will impact the market and what he goes out and do does is buys options in a company he's never sniffed in his life from a securities trading standpoint the sec finds this out um they're very aggressive as we know in insider trading recently they're going to pursue that to the nth degree and what the judge did is took a very i think textual interpretation 
of the case law and of 10 b 51 a and said there's nothing in that law and in the, this case law and in the regulation that prohibits or precludes the interpretation that the SEC is advocating and I'm going to allow it from a market confidence standpoint you can see the rationale because certain people working in the industry have superior knowledge about where the industry is going because of their employment, even if they're not trading in the stocks of the companies you know, that they're working on, that you can see how that, that could uh, disadvantage other investors and undermine confidence in the markets in a broad sense. Yeah, in, 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 a, in, a, in a broad sense. I mean, that's, and that's something we always hear about, right? It's that, that corporate insiders misuse the, their, their, their position and their informational advantage to their benefit. Um, and, you know, look, as a, as a, as a citizen of the country, I, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily 100% disagree with that, but that's different than bringing insider trading actions based on a theory that I think if you get 10 securities practitioners in a room, you'd have a very lively discussion on both sides about whether the SEC's theory is consistent with all. I think you'd have some that, that frankly would say, you know what, I think that the SEC got it right and the court got it right. I think this is a bad case to bring from a policy standpoint, but I think that the SEC actually might've gotten this right as the court. And I think you'd have five others or maybe six others who would say that they got this totally wrong. This is leading us to the road where it's going to be pretty much, you're pretty much be on the hook for insider trading if you have any information that you get from any source that isn't non-public that you ostensibly owe some kind of duty to, no well, matter how vague and unconnected to the company stock that it is you're trading. And that's the concern here is that it just basically puts a big, I think of this like a Thanksgiving turkey. It's like they put a big silver platter over everything and there's no way out with certainty from a, from a trading standpoint, right? Like I, I learned that there's supply chain disruptions in the offing. Should I not literally trade any consumer good at all? I no, but this is much more, much closer connection. And the key here is that he's getting it from his knowledge from the job. Like if I overhear somebody talking on an elevator about a deal, I'm still not covered by this. There's no element of misappropriation there. There's no element of a breach of duty. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's where I think the, the guardrails in, on this decision are. I'm not saying it's the right decision, but yeah. I can of see the logic they're, they're clearly saying you signed you signed an insider trading policy the policy covered information you get in your job for trading in publicly traded securities um our view is that you got this information from your job you knew what the rules were you traded in publicly uh, traded securities um using this information or while in possession of this information and we think it was material because because of the reasons that they stated in the opinion, that the judge stated in the opinion, that there are very few companies out there that fit the mold of what the acquisition targets in this space look like. And when one off the, when one off the market, you being in the business of business development at a biotech company, you can safely assume that the price of others similarly situated are also going to go up. Um, and they, they you know, taken to its logical end. I don't know where that theory ends, but certainly it's going to, I think it, it should be a message to everybody out there in pretty much any corporate environment or any environment whatsoever, that you have to be very careful about what you do after you learn information um, with any degree of certainty. 
after you learn information from your employment. From your employer. From your employer. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, hey, guys, this is fascinating. I got to go talk insider trading on a completely different matter right now. So let's go. Uh, let, let's go away with uh, with uh, gathering crowds and we'll talk to you next week. Tom, great job. Thanks a lot.